Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce this week's guest, filmmaker Michelle Mitchell, a quick comment about our Positivity Lens activity for last week. You might remember that last week I asked you to fill out our quick five-question survey to provide me with some feedback on the show. The survey's still open. I've had a number of responses and I'd like to keep it open for another week. So please go to positivitystrategist.com slash PS22 to fill it out when you can. I appreciate you. And so now to this week's show. Filmmaker Michelle Mitchell is my guest this week. This year, Michelle's second documentary film will be released and it's called The Uncondemned. It's the story of contextualizing rape as an act of torture, power and humiliation and how for the first time the perpetrators of such crimes against humanity were prosecuted on a global stage. And Michelle, I'm really honored to have you as my guest this week. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Great. Michelle is the co-director, producer, writer of the upcoming documentary, The Uncondemned, as I've just mentioned. And she's also the Murrow-winning director, producer of Haiti, Where Did the Money Go?, which was filmed on PBS and OPB. OPB. And which is? Oregon Public Broadcasting. Oh, thank you. And a former correspondent for the NOW program with Bill Moyes on PBS. Michelle began her broadcast career on CNN Headline News, where she was the political anchor, and she's reported extensively from most of the 50 states and the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and North Africa. Michelle's a graduate of Northwestern University, and she started her career in Capitol Hill. She's authored three books, including two regional best-selling novels. And she's co-founder and executive editor at Film at 11, located in Brooklyn. So, Michelle, welcome again. And I think people would not expect me to be interviewing somebody about rape (laughs) on my podcast. Yet the sinister and horrifying story that you tell exposes crimes that need to be exposed and brings justice to those who haven't been heard and whose voices and stories need to be told if humanity is to develop towards goodness. And I love that you quote Tom Stoppard. He says that people do terrible things to each other, but it's worse in the places where people are kept in the dark. And Michelle, you say that your job is to help shine a light. Would you say more about that? Well, sure. Thank you. And thanks for making me sound so smart as you read everything out loud. So, you know, one of the things about rape in in conflict, rape as uh, used during wartime, is that nobody's talked about it, really. And I remember the first time I was really reading about it, I was reading a book called The Fall of Berlin, 1945. And in that book, the author happened to write about the Soviet army, 
raping around 3 million German women as they marched into Berlin. And I remember thinking, I've never heard this. I've, I watch the History Channel. Mm-hmm. I watch the Military Channel. I read a lot. What is this? So I happened to, to ask a German friend of mine. I, I, I have a few, but I asked one in particular who lived in Berlin. This would be in the early 2000s. I was having this conversation with her. And I said, did you know that German women were raped during World War II? And she looked at me like I was insane. And she says, well, yes. And I said, well, how come I don't hear about it? How come I'm just now reading about it? And she said, well, it's not something anyone talked about. And in fact, there were hundreds of thousands of suicides by those women because they didn't want to talk about it. It was, it was shameful. And I thought, well, that really has to change. What, what, what is this? How is this used as a tactic of war? Because for so long, people have thought about this as just something that happens, right? That's how it's mm-hmm. been recorded throughout history. And this idea of what happens to women, what happens to civilians during war has been kept in the dark for a long time. So I thought, all right, well, why not start empowering these people that this happened to by making it okay for them to talk about it? Yeah. There's a theme or trend here in your work overall. If you mm-hmm. think about Haiti, where did the money go? <laughs> so, you know, what's your mm-hmm. story? You know, how did you get here that these kinds of issues of humanity not being treated justly, how is this important to you? You know, it's that's such an interesting question because I grew up in Orange County, Robin. I grew up <laughs> at like 15 minutes from Disneyland. I'm from a, a small town called Yorba Linda, which is more popularly known for being the birthplace of Richard Nixon. Two-parent household, really happy childhood. And then I remember actually a trip. My parents took us on a cruise to the Eastern Mediterranean. And this was 1983. So this was very unusual to to even leave California at that time. Most people were not hopping on an international flight from Los Angeles anyway to to Greece. And my parents were not particularly wild and crazy people. They we, we took that trip because my dad wanted to see the Acropolis. But part <laughs> of that trip was to go to the Middle East, to go to Egypt and Israel. So when I was in Israel in 1983, it was the very beginnings of what became the first intifada. And one of the things I saw, um, I had separated from the tour and I was walking by myself because I, I saw a bread shop. And for a kid from California, I'd never seen a store that was just for bread. That was just extraordinary to me. So I left the Walk of Christ tour, which was a lot less interesting than the bread store. And while I was walking to the bread store, I was almost clobbered by some people running very, very quickly. And then they were followed by some soldiers who had guns. And I remember being dragged into the shop by the man who was working in the store and just as they opened fire. As a way and, to protect you. Yeah, as a yeah. way to protect me. Yeah. And I said, what, what happened? Remember, I'm 13. I'm from Southern California. I, you know, my biggest memory at that point was the Dixieland ban on Main Street, USA, mm. Disneyland. I said, what just happened? And he said, some people have been bad. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, what does that mean? And what makes people want to kill each other? And that's really what started it all was that trip where I thought I just could, I didn't understand violence. I didn't understand why. And I was really intrigued. What makes somebody pick up that gun? What makes somebody do something mean to someone else? And 
And I just became fascinated by how humanity has mistreated each other throughout history. And I started reading. I read a lot about the Holocaust. I, I remember I actually got in trouble. I would order books on Scholastic. I, you know, we used to get these magazines to order Scholastic books. And I would always order the Holocaust books. And my mom was like, what is wrong with you? Why do you keep reading this? Why don't you read Laura Ingalls Wilder? That's nice. So, but I, I just was always intrigued by this question. And then when I got older and was able to travel on my own, uh, you know, I, I was always asking these questions. I became very in, enamored, if you will, with what was happening in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Like that was the very next thing to sort of take a look at. And again, why are the, why is that guy doing that to that guy? So I guess it was natural. I would go into journalism. What was very strange is that I would go into television. So I always thought of myself as a writer. And then when I worked with Bill Moyers, that was really the the moment where everything fell into place mm. because that was that was his mission and what it was his mission his whole career. Right. Yeah. Um, that's where I was also thinking that um, how did you end up with Bill Moyers? And I'm sure that was a huge influence in what you were doing. But you obviously were attracted to that. So when you were attracted to these horrendous things that you were witnessing and then reading about in history, what was the intention? What, you know, what did you want to do with that? I really wanted to make things better. And by that, I mean, I didn't want to become an advocate. I wanted to do this via art. And I really thought I was going to do it by being the great American novelist. Um, obviously, I have a problem with ambition. I just have no ambition at all. Um, <laughs> but, but big aspirations, I, I think. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I remember the reason why I took the job on Capitol Hill. I went to work on the on Capitol Hill, and it was a big surprise to everybody. I, you have to, I was a sports writer for the Chicago Tribune all through college. And oh. every Everyone thought that's what I was going to do. I interned at Sports Illustrated. I mean, I had this really fun career path laid out in front of me, and, and covering sports is, is is really enjoyable. You know, you're you're covering human triumph. You know, mm-hmm. and I went to work on Capitol Hill. And I remember telling my father I was taking the job, and I was just out of college. And I said, Dad, if I want to tell people how I think things should be, I should know how things work and what is. And so. You know, I, my first, my first step in that direction was to figure out, okay, why do lawmakers make the laws they do? What can they do? What false aspirations do we project onto the law? What, what is possible without a law being passed? I mean, these were things that I was really interested in, but I mean, also to be perfectly honest with you, People who worked on Capitol Hill at, at that time seemed to have a really good time. I mean, you know, people from both parties talked to each other then. The staffers mm-hmm. all had a great time. And I remember we, we had no money. Everyone was from all around the United States. We were all sharing these houses together. And there were just a lot of really exciting ideas being thrown around. And I, so I was always really on this direction of, okay, I'm going to write stories that make people think, but I want to do them in a way that is sort of fun to read. It's, it's all fine and well to be able to tell a story, but when you can tell a story that has impact, that is a, a truly wonderful mm. thing. From what I am hearing is you focus on these very deep and meaningful topics about how do things work and how does it impact humanity and why do we do these things to each other? And there's a desire to expose this. So what is exciting for you when you do your work? 
You know, I consider myself to be incredibly privileged. I'll phrase it as bluntly as I possibly can. I'm an upper middle class white girl from Orange County, California, who went to a terrific college and graduated with no student debt. And the biggest lottery in life is where are you born, right? And I really won that lottery. And I see that part of that good fortune is I have a voice. I have a voice that gets listened to. And part of what I have to do with that good fortune is to go out and find the stories of people who cannot speak. And Mm -hmm. if they do, they're often not listened to. And what that boils down to oftentimes are stories about women, about children, and often they are in the third world. So I will never forget the first time I actually did one of those stories. I was 35, so it took a little while, right, of of me being on this journey. And I was assigned a story for the NOW program on PBS to go to Nepal to do a story about little girls being sold into indentured servitude. And it wasn't sex slavery. They were, you know, maybe six years old and their, the landowner would come in and say, okay, your daughter's six. My cousin in Kathmandu needs a nanny. So off the kid would go, right? And the family would be paid $10 and often the father drank the $10. So there was this program started by an American woman to give a goat to that family if they kept the daughter going to school. And then, and, and this worked actually. It was a very successful program. And I remember while I was doing the story, a landlord showed up to take away this little girl who I had just, I was in the process of interviewing her and the landlord shows up and takes her off into the sunset. And I was aghast. I was like, wait a minute, doesn't anybody know what just happened here? This is so horrible. We literally just saw this happen on tape and nobody did anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I did something really, well, I broke every rule of journalism. I told the, uh, the people who ran the organization, that NGO, I was like, listen, you need to find this little girl. And they said, well, there are so many little girls, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no, but my footprint is big on this one. I just made this kid's life extra miserable because the landlord was angry that she was speaking to me. He was angry at the family for speaking. And, you know, I'm leaving, right? But they're staying. And so I have all these emotions yeah. going through. And I said, listen, I'll, you know, I'll pay the fee. I'll pay your, the fee for the goat or whatever. Just go find this kid. And they did. They found her. And the end of that story is this little girl getting the knock on the door at her landlord's house in Kathmandu. And it's her father there in the NGO to take her home. And I talked to her maybe six, eight months after that. And this is the last time I talked to her. And she she was doing really well in school. And she Mm -hmm. told me, now I can... I wanted to be a doctor and now I can be. And with a, you know, and and that's a moment where you're, and that story that when it broadcast, the response it got. And I remember actually, I was recognized in a restaurant. I'm not often recognized (laughs) once in a while. It was a busboy who came over to talk to me, to tell me his mother had seen, had seen the the story. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to tell me that they were so happy because they had come from a village very similar and didn't think anyone paid attention to those stories and that it made them feel valued. And Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's one of those things where, again, these, these things happen all over the world. And mm. when you have that light get shown even briefly, and like, I promise you that landlord got in a lot of trouble. He was a member of parliament, by the way, at that time mm. in Nepal, he's not now, but the first time you can do something that you get a response, you realize, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to get out there and, and, and try to do some things. Yeah. I really hear that. You know, there's a lovely quote from Dewitt Jones, you know, Dewitt Jones, he's was a photographer 
himself with a National Geographic. He says in one of his, he does a lot of motivational kind of films now, and there's a beautiful one called Celebrate What's Right with the World. And he goes out there and does these stories. One of the lines he uses that has just left such an impact on me. He says, when you publish it in your life, you never know where it's going to end up. Oh, I love that. And so, you know, if you keep thinking about that, everything that I do has an impact. And so my, you know, I want to go out there and have a good impact on people. You just don't know what it is that you do that how you might influence people. And when you get feedback like that, these little stories that come back to you, it just makes you feel, yeah, I'm actually, that's what I needed to hear. I'm mm-hmm. I'm on the right path. I'm doing something that really makes a difference. And yeah. it's a good difference. <laughs> you know, it, it's true. And because, you know, you don't get rich doing this. <laughs> and no. you certainly don't get famous. You don't, you, you know, and it's not, it is not glamorous. Oftentimes mm-hmm. it's really grueling. And when you are in the act of doing the story, whether you're shooting it or writing it, you're in not so nice places. And you are often seeing mm-hmm. the worst that people can do to each other. And so, so when those moments happen where you realize that you're you're not creating this work in a hole that is just disappearing into the ether it is wonderful and it's one of the, you mentioned that you could tell that I love my work i mean i wake up every day going okay this is going to be cool what kind of thing am i going to tackle and it is a great way actually to to mm. live yeah so michelle why don't we come back now to your new movie coming out mm. soon the uncondemned and i'd like you to talk a little bit about what that's been for you in terms of, you know, even how you started and how you got money and where you hope it might go. So I let's start with how this started for you. Well, I started doing the in-depth research 2012. So the, the Haiti documentary had just started airing on PBS. And what was interesting about that coming out is that the American Red Cross really went after it. Well, they certainly encouraged the public television stations not to run mm-hmm. it. And so what that did is it increased the visibility of the show. <laughs> so if you want want to get a, a network to not run something yeah. or, or, or to run it more than they normally would, then tell them not to run it. Yeah. There's and, kind of no, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Yeah, certainly <laughs> not in this case. I mean, I never, I wasn't sure I believed in that phrase until this exact uh, situation happened. As a result of the publicity, a lot of different organizations wanted to host uh, a screening of the Haiti documentary. So I was on the road with it quite a bit. And I was interested in turning back to this idea of what happens post-conflict because we're so quick to go to war, right? I mean, that's been the last 10, 15 years. And I've been in quite a few theaters of war, so to speak. I'm not a war correspondent. I'm the person who goes in to like sort of take a look at corruption. But, you know, war zones are sort of fluid these days. You know, just when you think it's over, it starts again. One of the things that perturbed me was the fact that I would hear pundits on Sunday morning TV talk about, well, we need more boots on the ground. I'm thinking, you don't even know what you're, do you know what that entails? Are you really prepared to put lives on the line like that? Do you understand that war is really awful and the terrible things happen collaterally with civilians and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you know, most of those folks don't because they don't go to these places and they don't walk those refugee camps. And I was interested in doing something about rape and conflict because I had talked to so many refugees where something had happened and you, you see, and whether it's actually in a conflict zone or for example, in Haiti, certainly post earthquake, there were a lot of rapes in those displacement camps, right? Why does that happen? And who does it? And are they prosecuted? 
So I was starting to do my research and I, it started sort of large because I started with those German women, right? And yes. I was interested, like what happened with them? Why wasn't I prosecuted? Then I looked at what happened to Korean women during World War II and the Chinese women. And then, of course, the example I had in my head, and I'm sure you have in your head and your listeners may have in their heads, was Yugoslavia. Because what happened in the former Yugoslavia, we saw footage, we heard stories about rape camps, right? And those were the famous examples. So I really thought that the Yugoslav tribunal, I knew that there had been an international criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, because everyone knew that that existed, right? Who's following international Mm -hmm. justice. It was the first tribunal since Nuremberg. It was based out of The Hague. And I knew that they had indeed prosecuted rape as a crime of war. Mm -hmm. So I started researching that and I read all sorts of books about it. And then I happened to be, I'll never forget it. We were screening the Haiti documentary in Bellingham, Washington at the Pickford Theater. I was there with a human rights lawyer named Nicole Phillips And we were having a glass of red wine. And she says, what are you doing next? And I said, I want to do something about rape prosecuted as a crime of war. And she says, oh, Akayesu. And I was like, what? Mm. (laughs) I thought that sounded Japanese. I was like, Akayesu, what is that? (laughs) And she said, that's the case. That's the first time rape was prosecuted as a crime of war. And I said, I no, it was Yugoslavia, right? And she says, no, it was Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you're kidding. And she says, no, and you need to talk to Pierre Prosper. I said, who is Pierre Prosper? She goes, oh, he's Haitian American. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, come on, really? Because I just done this Haiti movie. And she says, yeah. I'm getting goosebumps. Hmm. Yeah, he is the prosecutor. And uh, he's the guy who won the case. And I was like, what? So she put me in touch with him. He says that, uh, so I talked to him for the first time in January of 2013. He's blaming me for his receded hairline since uh, that, <laughs> that first conversation. And Pierre ends up to be the former deputy district attorney from Los Angeles who was in the hardcore gang unit. He inexplicably ended up in charge of this case against a, a, a mayor of a small town outside of Kigali. And his co-counsel was 27 years old and had just graduated from Columbia Law School. He says, you need to talk to Sarah Darashori. Sarah Darashori ends up to be almost a neighbor of mine in New York. This is so serendipitous. Isn't it crazy? Oh. And it just it gets weirder and weirder mm. than that. I mean, there was, it, was, it was almost as if I was meant to do this story that all these steps led to mm. this moment. So I started, I, so I, I met with both of them and I'm interviewing them. And I remember turning to Nick Louvel as my co-director on this. And I said, we need to meet these guys and see if they're as charismatic in person as they are on the phone. And they were great. And then the next step was, okay, it's one thing to have the uh, attorneys involved. And it was such a great story because it was so clear, like from the tribunal even being started to the fact it almost fell apart to the fact that it was the first case. It wasn't all the fancy kids at the Yugoslav tribunal who got all the attention. It was this, this case in this African court that actually set judicial precedent and changed history. And of course you go, who are the women? Who are the first people in history to testify? Mm -hmm. And I found them. I found them in the summer of 2013. And in August, 2013, I cashed in all my frequent flyer miles and I flew to Rwanda. I knew I was going to go to Rwanda and into Congo because I wanted to see if I wanted to be able to meet the perpetrators too, right? It's not just enough to meet the people who testified. You also have to talk to the people who did it. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be really tricky because the situation in Congo is it's an open war zone and the Kivus, you've got 28 different militias fighting each other. And I didn't know anybody in sub-Saharan Africa. I always said I wouldn't go to a sub-Saharan war and here I was going off mm-hmm. to, to check this out. When I met the women the first time, 
I just remember thinking they were really fantastic and, in, and cool and interesting, but I just said, I think I want to do this film. And I told them about how I had done the Haiti documentary about what happened to And they money. weren't reluctant to come forward to you at this time? Well, they weren't reluctant, but one, I think one of the things that helped put it over the, over the, the, the top in terms of being able to talk to me the first time was when they heard I took on the aid industry in Haiti. And they, oh. the, aid, the aid industry does not mm. have a good reputation, mm. in, uh, certainly in Rwanda and to some degree also in Congo. So they thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> um, and I, so even the, I gave them copies of the film, not that they were necessarily going to watch it, but they, you know what they said later, Robin? They said that they thought that people had forgotten about them and their story until I showed up. No. So I think that they were just ready to talk. It had been 20 years almost since the genocide at that point, Gosh. 16, 17 years since they testified. And but what I didn't know, to be honest with you, is if they were going to be willing to use their own names. And I told them I would be back in November. And I came back in November on schedule with Nick, my co-director. And when we interviewed them, I, I did say like, are you, are you all right using your name? And I remember witness JJ, who's the first woman in history to testify. She mm-hmm. said, you bet, you better use my name. <laughs> I want my, I want my grandchildren to, to see this. So Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, you know, one of the things I was very careful to do, Robin, is that you don't want, when you're interviewing a trauma victim, you have to respect Mm -hmm. what's happened to them. Mm -hmm. And some of that is, you, you know, you sort of, you figure out, okay, what, how far are they willing to talk right now? One of the things I, I did very specifically is I never asked them, what happened to them. Um, I, I know what happened to them. I've read their testimony, but I started the interview asking them, why did you decide to testify? Mm-hmm. Because it's such a, it's a much more complicated answer to that. And it's so much more interesting. And the fact that I started the conversation from that question really set the tone. And those three interviews are, I think three of interviews I'm the most proud of in my, mm. in my career. And you really see it when they, when you see them on screen, you know, these are not extremely traumatized women. Yes, they are still to some degree, but they, uh, they had their day in court and they want people to know that, you know, you don't have to just accept that this happens to you. There are avenues to pursue justice, to have re- your moment of redemption. And certainly their moment of courage is recorded now for posterity. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I love you say that it's your proudest moments, those three interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Those were, they were, they were very taxing emotionally. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I have a very hard time even now, this is going to be so embarrassing, but I, it, I should just go ahead and say it. I probably made myself more vulnerable during the making of this film than I have in any other story or anything I've ever done in my career. And there's certainly a, an emotional and psychological price to pay for, for doing Mm -hmm. that. But I don't know how I could have gone about it any other way because if if I'm asking these people to talk about something like this, I have to be vulnerable myself, right? And one of the the preparation that went into those interviews, and I've I've never been so nervous before as well was when we sat down to to talk because I I wanted them to be as proud of the interviews 
as I was of, of what they had already done. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to do right by them. Um, it was really very, very important and still is. We have a very hard time even now we're, you know, we're editing the film frantically right now. And I have a very hard time not tearing up when they say certain things when I'm watching them. Yeah, no, I can hear that. And it's so lovely to hear you express what you really appreciate about yourself in doing this and what you actually facilitated for those women to be able to come out and to have their voice and to really think about why they were doing this. And it was really not so much about them, but what they could do for their children and their grandchildren. So very beautiful. So this is the positive stuff that comes out of the work that you're doing, right? Even in these most awful circumstances and when we're doing the worst things in the world. You know, humanity has this hope, right? I mean, we live with this hope and this faith that things will get better. And it takes stories like this to bring it out into the open. So I'm looking so forward. I can't wait to see this. (laughs) (laughs) Me me neither. (laughs) So tell us about the rollout. What have you got planned? And I know just from some of the research that I've done that you were, it was so important to you to develop a community around that. So how's that working for you? And just tell us about what you're going to do with this and what your hopes and dreams are for this. And then, you know, where else this might take you? Well, we That's, just, they're big questions I'm asking you, I know. Sure, no, I can, I, and I can answer them all. Um, <laughs> that's the good news. So with the, you know, you, you asked earlier about the financings. So I'll start with that. Mm-hmm. We, we ultimately decided to crowdfund this, which means, you know, you do things like Kickstarter or, or, you know, you have dinners organized or events where people write small or in some cases, larger checks. We did not go for grant money. We would have loved to, but the grant process, it takes a long time and people were talking now. And so we were, we did feel that we needed to to move fairly quickly putting this film together. We actually did have somebody who was willing to write us a, a really large check. He's just somebody in the finance industry. And then I'll never forget, he actually said, what's Rape's brand? And I was like, what? <laughs> what do you, what's Rape's brand? And he says, well, yes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm funding a couple of other films. I know what their brand is. Um, what's Rape's brand? And I thought, okay. Out of all the questions I've ever been asked, that one was not one I saw coming. And I understand actually why he asked that. And I said, "Uh, okay, I'll tell you what, why don't you keep your check and I'm going to show you. And Mm. so we did our first Kickstarter because I was like, all right, let's see what Rape's brand is, right? Let's see who's interested in this. And it was interesting because we raised, for that initial shoot, we raised twice as much as we had asked for. And we had over 200 donors and it was 50-50 male, female. And the average age of the male donor is 25. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's Rape's brand. It's everybody. Mm-hmm. And that really got us started. And we, mm-hmm. we really went out of the box though, because, you know, we didn't go to women's groups or human rights groups and ask for money. What we did was we went to people who've probably never been asked for money before for a film. So for example, I like wine. And when we did the Haiti film and we did some auctions, one of the things that went for the most were these magnums of wine that were donated by different vintners. And so my friend was saying, gosh, and there are so many women winemakers. It'd be great to do something with them. And I was like, God, you're right. So I flew out to Napa. I drove around and met with some women winemakers. I showed them some of the footage we had so far. And I said, can you help? We'd like to do a women in wine auction. And so we had, we had 34 
women winemakers from Napa and Sonoma donate magnums, sign magnums for a <laughs> women in wine auction that happened last June. It was our biggest event. Um, it was held here in New York City and it really got things kicked off because what we tapped into were women, women winemakers are, are terrific Fantastic. entrepreneurs and they do really interesting things. They're very politically active. In fact, you know, they've been ex- extremely strong supporters of the film ever since. And so that sort of got us kicked off in doing things that people hadn't thought of before. Mm-hmm. And we had an event in San Francisco at an art gallery that Alice Walker spoke at, and that brought in San Francisco art community into it. We have, um, we have an event coming in February at the Carter Center that Gandhi's grandson's going to be at. I mean, we've had colleges raise money. We've, I mean, it's just, it's been really interesting and um, a little ad hoc that way, but I would compare it to almost running for office. You know, you're trying to build awareness and get people Mm -hmm. excited and involved early because it's really important, like I said earlier, to talk about this as a human rights issue. And that base has to be more broad than Mm -hmm. the usual suspects talking about this issue. We have a very, very excited and increasingly enthusiastic base out there, which is which is very exciting. And I have to actually tell you something kind of funny. With the Kickstarter campaign, one of the rewards was that they got um, a production diary. So when we were in Af- when we were shooting Nick and I in uh, Rwanda and Congo, and most of that shoot that November was in Congo, I was writing installments of this production diary. But I didn't realize how scary it sounded to people because it was actually scary. We went like, you know, three and a half days into the middle of nowhere. And, you know, we ended up meeting with these with this militia who said, oh, you probably think we're going to kill you. You know, so I'm, I'm writing this production diary and filing it. So we when we came back to the United States, we had a welcome home dinner at this restaurant that people bought tickets for as a fundraiser. And we thought we would have new people at that, um, at that dinner. And we walk in and it's a lot of the people from the Kickstarter. And we were like, wow, this is kind of interesting. And somebody said, I just wanted to make sure you were still alive. I was really worried I had contributed to something that sent you guys off to die. <laughs> and we were like, oh God, sorry about that. So anyway, that, that excitement and making mm-hmm. sure that we're still in, in one piece has continued. And the closer we get to completion, people are, are really getting more excited. And so part of that has been that base talks to each other, right? So that's led to colleges calling us to give speeches or to send interns to come work with us. We have a wonderful partnership with Texas Christian University. We've got the Archer School for Girls in Westlake, California, in in Los Angeles. Their advanced filmmaking class are doing some film projects based on this film. So that's very exciting because, again, if you want to have a cultural shift, you've got to have it start there. And then what we're really gunning for is um, we're going to take the film back to Rwanda. We're going to show it there first. We feel that that's what the least we can do to, mm-hmm. for that community and, um, and, sh- and for the women. And we will have a screening there June 17th, which will be the 18th anniversary of when the indictment was historically amended to include charges of rape as a crime against humanity. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we'll, we'll take it to them first. And then at that point, Knockwood, we'll have a distribution deal and we can start rolling it out on television and on the big screen. That's great. Yeah, because I'm curious how you take this subject of rape, this act of rape, this behavior of rape outside of war context into 
college campuses, into the street, into public transportation. You know, you see it all over the world. So how you can elevate the conversation that goes beyond a war crime, but it's actually, it is a crime against humanity, as you, you know, we've been saying right through. But to think about, you know, this conversation and the fact that you're saying that colleges and schools are interested in bringing this into mainstream and doing projects around it, because all this kind of conversation and awareness is the thing that's going to start the changes happening. You've got to get it out there in the public. And we're doing it better. Um, Yes, we are doing it better. And I'll tell you some of the things that makes people stop and go, what? When I tell people that, okay, in Congo, at least, at least 30% of victims of rape in that conflict are men. And the mm-hmm. reaction is, wait, what? Mm-hmm. And well, is it other, is it, I, I've heard everything from, well, is it gay men raping? It's like, no. Well, is it women raping? Well, no. Um, well, what is it then? And what do you mean? Are you sure? And I'm like, look, you know what? That, those are the victims we know of. It actually may be higher than that. And that 30% stands up in every conflict that, that has gone on. And in fact, if we were to really look into World War II, for example, I'm sure we would hear some really horrible stories, but those men don't talk about these things. We have a hard enough time to- talking about this when it comes to female victims. They are ostracized. They become outcasts. They're humiliated. Well, what, how do you think a, a male victim reacts? Mm-hmm. There are countless stories of this. And in fact, I personally have seen victims as young as five, but we know that this is something that happens to all ages. The youngest I've heard of is two, and I've heard is as old as 78, and I'm sh- I am positive that it goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. We know that these assaults often take place in public, and that's done specifically to terrorize. The fact is that because it has not been taken as seriously in terms of war crimes as we do poison gas, as we do a landmine, as we do chemical warfare. The fact that this is still to some degree regarded as something that just happens, that has to change. And I think when you start to change it at that level and we actually start having a real discussion um, with fundamental word changes even, Mm -hmm. you know, and how we talk about this, we can start broadening that discussion. Mm Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's how we tell these stories and the language we use, which shapes the way that we deal with it. So as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, other contexts like prisons, for example, it's there, it's in the system. And um, so if you think about now people sitting in the theatre and seeing your documentary, what emotion do you want to evoke? What do you want those people to feel as they as they see this piece of work that you're doing? Well, I I want them to feel hope. I want them to feel hope that it is possible for for there to be a change because the change already happened. You know, if you, you, when you're watching this, the story of the Akeusu case, that story changed everybody involved, not just the women who, Mm. who, who said we felt valued. It also changed those prosecutors. It changed those activists who have been pushing for this. Every single one of them at the end of the film, and you see them because they're being interviewed, you know, again, 17 years after they were kids who changed the Mm. legal world. It significantly informed how they went on and did and and conducted their careers. They're still very much involved in this idea of international criminal justice and domestic justice as well. They have not lost their faith in the ability to have that effect. And what I really hope is that people 
walk out of that theater or turn off their TV and feel empowered. This is not a story that is going to make you put your head through the wall and say, there's nothing I can do. It's already been done. <laughs> this has been done. And the idea is, all right, let's take those steps forward now. What else can we do now? What yeah. else can we do to keep it at the top of the list of things that do get prosecuted? Because those criminals do get scared. How, why did we get that interview with that militia? They gave us that interview because they are worried that the International Criminal Court is coming after them. So that fear does work mm-hmm. in terms of the idea that there is no impunity has an effect. It does work. And I think that people will sit back and go, all right, well, if they can do it, I can do something. And I can already tell you that there is someone in the film who was involved with the prosecution, happens to be an American, and one of the things that drove her to participate in this particular case was that she had been raped. And until this film, she's never come out publicly. She does come out publicly in this film and talk about it. I remember when she made the decision that she was going to talk about on camera, she said, I can't not talk about it because if those women can come forward, I can come forward. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything to be ashamed of. Yeah, that's great. So, Michelle, how can people find out more? So I create these show notes for Positivity Strategists and your episode will be positivitystrategist.com slash ps. 23. I'd like to include some links. So can you just give us some ideas as to how people can find you and be in touch with you if they choose to? Sure. There are two really good ways to do that for those who would like to go to our website where we have constant updates and we also list off all of the activities going on. We, we have a lot of outreach things happening right now, a lot of social things around this film, from salons to cocktail parties to guest speakers. So if you go to www.film, F-I-L-M, AT11, so film at 11.tv, as in television. All of that information and clips are there, and you'll see the listing for The Uncondemned. And also, if you prefer Facebook, we do have The Uncondemned Facebook page, which you can check out. And for the Instagram fans here, my Instagram is mlmitchell 70 what I'm recording on there is really the behind the scenes of us putting this together. And that's, it, that's a very specific mission for my Instagram. And although I think my co-director is going to be very upset with me because I just posted a, a photo of the assistant editors, which would be things like Pepto-Bismo and Alka-Seltzer. And he's going to be very angry that I put that out publicly. <laughs> I, actually, I have to say, Michelle, I saw that on your Twitter stream and I thought, <laughs> this is just too funny. These are the kind of support, supports and assistance that you have. Oh dear, we know what this life is like. <laughs> it's just the current phase. If you, if you see a whiskey bottle in my, in my Twitter feed or my Instagram, then you know something has gone really crazy here. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you've definitely got a sense of humor and you uh, we need that to balance ourselves right in this in this work. So this is fantastic. I would I want to thank you so much. You've been so kind with your time and sharing all these this amazing work that you're doing and I feel very inspired and very optimistic and very positive about the work that you're doing. I'm just going to be researching these things. I'm going to be putting this on the show notes page so people can find out more about you. I thank you so much, Michelle, for this conversation. 
well, and for the work you, so you do. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's, it's really, it's really great to be able to speak with you and, and go, oh, okay, you know, I, I, I can do this. I can really finish this film. <laughs> now I have to, Robin wants it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And all these listeners are out there waiting for it. So yeah. It's coming. It's almost done. <laughs> yeah. Well, how wonderful. And then there's the next great thing, right? So very nice. Thanks again, Michelle. Thank you. This week's Positivity Lens activity, which I encourage you to download on the show notes page of this episode, and that's positivitystrategist.com slash PS23, is to reflect on what positive difference you're making in the world. Now, it may not be on the scale of making a documentary film about prosecuting rapists, but it could be about creating a video of something significant to you and sharing it within your circles or even wider. There are so many tools available on our mobile devices today that you can do this kind of thing. Now, the big questions that come out of my conversation with Michelle Mitchell this week are about how can we bring more positivity to our lives and the lives of others? So let me invite you to think about three big questions. One, how are you aware of the privileges in your life? What do you take for granted when in fact it's really living with privileged? Life itself. Loving relationships. Good, healthy food. Access to information. Medicine, technology, transportation. Education. Every time you can choose, it's a privilege. Number two. What's your impact in your community? How are you serving? What are you publishing in your life that has a positive influence on you and others? And number three, where are you vulnerable? So that by showing it, you are breaking down barriers and creating heartfelt and loving connection with others. Thank you for listening and remember... What you focus on grows, so grow towards your best.